Morning, church. Good to see everybody here. It's nice to see some people back for the first time in a long time, which is exciting. Praying for increased normalcy, right? God's care of us as a community. Paul writes in the book of Ephesians, we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. We are his workmanship, something he's doing, and, and we are to work. We're created by God to do good works. God's working in us, and he expects us to work as well. In fact, he's prepared works in advance for us to do. Isn't that wonderful? There are works that God has prepared for you to do that are out there waiting upon you to get them done. Future works, things that he's eager to see you do that'll bring you joy and bring him glory. The word translated here is workmanship. Jonathan, would you, or Jennifer, would you throw that back up just for a little while longer? That first verse, we are God's workmanship. The word translated here as workmanship comes from the Greek word poema, from which we get our English word poem. Paul is wanting to convey the idea that God's writing a beautiful poem out of our lives, a great work of art. Let's let that soak in a moment. A great work of art God's doing in your life. Do you feel like God is making something beautiful out of your life? I hope so. A question of equal importance is, are we cooperating with God's beautiful work in our lives? Or are we resisting him? Are we participating in all that God has planned for us? While it's nice to feel that God's making something beautiful out of our lives, it's equally important to cooperate with what God is doing in our lives, to participate in it. Look at what Paul wrote about the part we're to play in God's work in our lives. This is from Philippians, as you've always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. He's writing this letter to them. I'm not with you, I send this letter. You've always obeyed. I'm not with you right now. Continue to obey much more in my absence. Work. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What good works has God prepared in advance for us to do? Remember the passage from Ephesians? There are works out there prepared in advance for you to do. What good works might they be? Those good works certainly include working out your salvation, even with fear and trembling, through fear, through trembling times, difficult times. Now, to work out your salvation is not the same as working for your salvation. Everybody see the Subtle but important nuance there. We're working out our salvation. We're not working for our salvation. It's God who works in you, he says, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God's at work in your life. And based on that, get to work. Get to work. Work out your salvation. Simply another way to say we are his workmanship. 
God's doing something beautiful in our lives. So get moving. Get moving. He's saving us. We're not saving ourselves. It's, it's him who's at work in us. So get to work. But the work of salvation that he's doing is something that we participate in. We don't cause it, but we are active in it. Does that make sense, those nuances? Really important that the horse is out in front of the cart. We don't cause it. We sure are active in it. We can cooperate with it. Paul writes in another place in the New Testament, stay in step with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. It's actually a command. Be filled with the Spirit. We don't cause our salvation, but we do work it out, even through fear and trembling, difficult times. What does it look like to work out our salvation, even through trembling, even through fear? How do we cooperate? What specifically are we active in? How do we participate? What are those works prepared in advance for us to do? Turn to Luke 18, would you, with me, in your copy of God's Word? Luke chapter 18, we're at the top of the chapter, verses 1 to 8 this morning. While you're turning there, I'll set the scene a little bit. This morning's parable comes right on the heels of Jesus teaching the disciples about his second coming. So he just had this dialogue with the disciples about his second. He'd actually been asked, when's the kingdom of God coming, the Pharisees ask. He says, it's now in your midst, and it'll, and then he turns to his disciples, it's in your midst, and it will be fully experienced when I return. He had just reminded them of God's judgment upon humanity as he talked about his return. He reminded them of Noah's flood, Sodom's destruction for the wickedness of the people's behavior. Next, he segues into a teaching on prayer, but not just any type of prayer, not just any type of prayer, a a critical type of prayer, an urgent type of prayer. You know, statistically, we know that most everyone who's breathing prays. Everybody prays, virtually, everybody. Whether or not they pray to Yahweh, our Heavenly Father, that's the Old Testament name for, for God, or they pray to other gods, most everybody prays. Jesus is going to teach us, though, on a very particular type of prayer that's needed in our lives. So Luke 18, it's on the screen as always. Verses one to eight. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time the judge refused her request for justice. But finally, he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care, for, or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I'll see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. The literal is give me a black eye. I'm not going to suffer. I don't want to suffer because of her coming at me, demanding justice so much. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? Rhetorical questions. The answer is no. I tell you, he'll see that they get justice and quickly. 
However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? If you're an underliner, I would underline that last question. For me, it seems like the parable is moving towards that challenge. Jesus saying, well, will he find faith when he returns? Remember, he just told them that uh, when he returns, the kingdom would come in its fullness. It'll be consummated at that time. And he wants to know when he returns, will his people still be praying? So what does it look like to work out our salvation? Why might we need to go through fear and trembling in that process? How do we cooperate with God's beautiful poetry, his poem writing, his work of art in our lives? What specifically are the works prepared in advance for me to do? What specifically are the works prepared in advance for me to to do? Here's my main thought today. Persevering prayer is one of the works prepared in advance for us. It's one of them. And it's one of the ways that we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Persistent prayer would be another word, persevering prayer. The parable, Luke 18, is one of my favorite for a number of reasons. One of One of the reasons it's my favorite is because we're told what we're supposed to glean from the passage before we read it. Luke says, Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them they should always pray and not give up. It's low-hanging fruit, right? We're to persist in prayer. We're not to grow discouraged in prayer. We're not to, uh, to give up on prayer. We're to persist. We're to persevere. We're to always pray and not give up. As disciples, we should certainly pray. Again, statistically, most people pray. Both Christians and non-Christians alike pray. But this parable is about something different. It's about persistent prayer, which which is completely categorically different than offering up a single prayer, right? Or our second prayer, or third prayer. It's about months of prayer, if not years of prayer. According to Jesus, persevering prayer is a decided act of faith by which we participate in the kingdom coming. Remember the Lord's prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. These are the instructions of God the Son on how his followers are to pray. We're to be praying for the kingdom come. And one of the ways that we're going to see that happen is if we persist in prayer, if we persevere, push through, do we get an answer? In this particular parable, the specific aspect of the king's coming that is being sought is justice. When the king comes, justice will arrive with him, full justice, complete justice. There'll be fairness, judicial fairness, there'll be righteousness in the judgment, there'll be mercy in the judgment. The context of this passage, remember it comes on the heels of the Pharisees asking, when will the kingdom come? It's in your midst, Jesus says, because he's standing right there. They don't see him as the king over all creation. When will evil be vanquished? They might as well have asked. When will When will righteousness rule? 
When will God have his way in his people be cared for fully. Jesus answered them saying, the kingdom's already in your midst. It'll come fully when I return. And then he asked at the end of today's parable, will I find faith when I return? Persevering prayer is the primary means by which we experience the person and the purposes of the king. It's great to pray once. It's great to pray twice, three times. Persevering prayer is the primary means, or I'll say, I don't want to overstate, is a primary means by which we experience the person and the purposes of God in our families, in our community, in our nation, globally. Again, in this particular parable, it's the king's justice that is being sought. His fairness, wisdom, righteousness. We see a dogged determination on the part of this widow. The judge comes to the place where he's afraid he's going to get a black eye. Whether that means socially or physically, I don't know. But this widow, she's determined. She wants to see personal and systemic evil overcome. Give me justice against my adversaries. She wants to see personal and systemic evil. The systemic evil would be represented by the, the unjust judge who sits on the bench and does whatever he pleases and rules only when it's his, in his best interest to avoid a black eye. He's tired of her. Give her what she wants. Personal and systemic evil. In persevering prayer, in persistent prayer, is, is that all we need? Is that all we need to see justice in this world? What do you think? No. No. We also participate in God's workmanship in the world, in our lives. We demonstrate faith, right? Well, I find faith when I return. Persevering prayer is not the only way. It's not the only work prepared in advance for us to do by any stretch of the imagination. It's a primary, I would say it's a foundational work of God's people. But we also participate in the kingdom's coming simply by opening our mouths and telling the truth about sin in our lives. The church calls it confession. And telling the truth about sin we see in the world. So that it's not, persevering prayer is not the only work prepared in advance for us to do. It's, it's not the only element of his workmanship that he's doing in our lives. I'm telling you, church, he's, he, the work he's doing in our lives is to move us to a, pers- a persevering prayer life. Those that are following Jesus will have an increased interest in prayer. That's all there is to it. And not just one-off prayer but a staid, dogged lifestyle on your knees. It's not all that's needed to see justice in the world. It's foundational, though. We need to tell the truth. That's another way about sin in our own lives, about sin that we see in the world. We need to open our mouths in that respect. We also battle personal and systemic evil by passing legislation that protects communities and families. 
By advocating for the weak and the marginalized, just this week, we had our monthly care center providing resources for the under-resourced in our community. One of the ways that we see personal and systemic evil overcome is when we care for the weak and the marginalized. The widow in this chapter, certainly both of those. We also see personal and systemic evil overcome by seating juries to hear the facts surrounding a case in an order to pass judgment on wicked behavior. So is persevering prayer all that's needed for justice, for the kingdom to come? No. But persevering prayer is foundational. Let's be honest, life's circumstances can be difficult. It's easy to grow discouraged. It's easy to think, I've prayed about that till I'm blue in the face. When life's pressing in on us, it's easy to grow impatient with God's apparent slowness, right? His apparent slowness. Jesus himself says, he'll see that we get justice and quickly. So from our vantage point, granted, I'm with you. It seems that God is slow in some cases to answer our prayers. How many of us, though, would enter a house, reach for a switch to turn on the light, and when it didn't come on, we'd simply stop trying. We just don't do that, right? We don't do that in our homes. How many of us would live comfortably in the dark, i.e. unanswered prayer? We don't do that. When the light doesn't come on, we check the bulb. Maybe unscrew it, rattle it, is the thingy loose? Replace the bulb, still doesn't work. Ah, the best I got, I guess I'll just live in the dark. No, we don't do that. We go to the fuse box, we pretend we know what we're doing in the fuse box, throw some switches, still not working. It's that point, my wife makes me call an electrician. We just don't live comfortably in the dark. Right, that bothers us, we, we know better than that. We know we have a resource that electricity is available to our house, so we work to find the answer. A few of us would live comfortable lives in our houses in the dark, and we're to have the same practice when it comes to experiencing the person and the purposes of the king. We're to have that same posture when it comes to experiencing the person and the purposes of the king. We're to persevere in prayer. As we pray, we throw the light switch, so to speak, wanting an immediate response, admittedly. When the light doesn't come on, we don't receive immediate response. We're not to grow comfortable in the dark with unanswered prayer. When God is seemingly slow to answer, endure, prevail. Far too many Christians are living in the darkness of unanswered prayer far too comfortably. I have unanswered prayer in my life. I have unanswered prayer in my life. I'm talking about growing comfortable in it. So many suburbanites give their greatest strength and energy to the pursuit of wealth and comfort in positions of influence. All the while, 
living with unanswered prayer. Who will fight the good fight of faith? Who will persevere? Who will advance the kingdom on their knees? Where are the men and women who will pray not once or twice or three times, but for weeks and for months and for years to see justice? Who, with dogged determination, will pray for their neighbor's salvation? For revival in the American church. The healing of nations. Where's our dogged determination to see the goodness of God? Where's our passion for God's attributes to be experienced by our children? Let's not live comfortably in the dark. Let's persist. This parable has characters in it that I think we can easily um, relate with even understand kind of their posture, their position. The widow represents those who are weakest and most needy in society. She's alone, she's helpless, she's without recourse to change her situation. She can't force the judge to do anything on her behalf. She's totally reliant on his mercy. We find ourselves in the same position when we approach God. We don't have the power. There's no armbar, right? There's no armbar that forces God to do what we want. We can't, we can't make God. That's not what this parable's about, in fact. It's actually about the eagerness of God to care for us in comparison to an unjust judge. So don't hear me when I say, persevere in prayer, assault God to get what you want. That's not the takeaway of the parable. The widow is easy to identify with because we all have issues in our lives where we feel alone and helpless and needy. Issues with which we need God's help or they're just not going to get solved, not going to get addressed. Issues in which we're powerless except for the opportunity to pray, which really is the greatest opportunity. It's the greatest power we have. Perhaps you're wrestling with someone, uh, wrestling in prayer for someone that has chronic illness, persist. Perhaps you're wrestling in prayer uh, for a child that's not following Christ closely or walking away from Christ, persist in prayer. Endure, persevere. Maybe you're overcome during the COVID season. A lot of mental health issues have bubbled to the surface. It's not just physical issues, a lot of anxiety, a lot of depression, persistent prayer. In fact, it occurs to me that it's really why, you know, we read the Psalms together as a community. It's a communal opportunity to talk about who God is. We start our service that way. We're also given to one another for prayer, and there'll be prayer at the end of the service. We relish the opportunity to pray with one another. If you have um, grown discouraged in prayer for any issue, it'd be our pleasure to pray together with you. How do we balance, though, persistence in prayer with contentment in life? Right? Paul also says, be content in all situations, or I've learned the secret of being content in all situations. What's it mean to be persistent and content? To answer this question, let's look at the, how the judge is described. Luke 18, verses 4 and 5, for some time he refused. 
Finally, he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care for what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I'll see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually come and attack me. The judge of the story is arrogant, doesn't fear God. He's callous. He doesn't care about those for whom he has authority over. What's Jesus' point here? Are we to conclude that's who God is and how he feels towards us as we come to him in prayer? No. That's not the teaching of the parable. Jesus is not saying God's like the judge and he must be badgered. That's not what it means to persist in prayer. The point of the parable is that God is actually the opposite, eager to answer us. Look what Jesus says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen one? It's, in other words, it's how much different is the just judge of over, over all creation? How much different is our heavenly father? Who He'll answer us. Um, and will he not bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? No, I tell you. He'll see that they get justice and quickly. If you've ever spent any time in a courtroom, you know the important role that the character of the judge plays in justice being carried out. Judges interpret the law. They help juries apply the law. I just had a, a funny memory come to mind. I, so my dad was a lawyer for the longest time. Once a year, my mother would take me out of school when I was in elementary school. She would take me to see my father in closing arguments. He was a... Um, most of his trials were before juries. And there was this one judge famous in town. Um, this was in the South, in Texas, um, which will help with understanding. It appeared he was asleep during the entirety of the closing arguments. No, he had his eyes closed, and he's way back in his chair. You can barely see him from where I was seated. It appeared he was asleep until things got out of control. At which point he reached under the bench and pulled out a shotgun and put it on top of the bench. You know, the, we laugh because it's so absurd, but the character of a judge matters in the execution of judge, justice. Judges uh, tell juries how to apply the law as they deliberate. You know, a trial by, uh, heard by your peers. I mean, none of you guys want me on a jury where you're being tried. Uh, So it's the judge's job to instruct the jury in the nature of justice, how to identify it. Character of the judge matters. That's the point of this parable. Jesus is contrasting the arrogant and callous judge who grants justice reluctantly and only in self-interest with the righteous judge who cares for those under his authority Jesus is saying persist in prayer because God's caring, a just judge who loves you and has your best interests at heart. Do we see God that way? If we do, we'll be increasingly motivated to pray. If we don't see God that way, that's where we need to start in prayer. Father, I don't see you or I struggle with your nature. I would start there. It's hard for me to come to you. I feel discouraged. I'm doubting whether you're good. Ultimately, when we're tempted to give up on prayer, we're being tempted to doubt God's character. Ultimately, when we're tempted to give up on prayer, we're tempted, we're being tempted to doubt God's character. 
And based upon the authority of God's word this morning, I want to encourage you to fight the good fight, to persevere in prayer, to bet all you have in life on the goodness of God. Amen. Now you may ask, why has God made it this way? Why has God ordained things this way? That he's working in us, that's great, we love that, and that we're to work out our salvation. That there, why is, we know he's a creator. Why has he um, ordained that there are works prepared in advance for us to do, things we're to be about? Why is it that he's ordained that he causes our salvation and we're active in it? Why has he ordained it this way? What's gained by requiring, what's gained by requiring us to persevere in prayer? I think that Jesus' question at the end of the chapter leads us to an understanding of why he's ordained it. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? God's at work in us. He's doing a beautiful work of restoration. At the same time, we're not passive observers. We're active participants. It appears from this parable, as well as the balance of Scripture, that prayer is a primary means in the good work that God's doing in our lives. Here's the crux of the issue. Jesus teaches in this parable that prayer actually directs the events of history. Have you thought of it that way? The parable is kind of small-scale, micro-reality of a, a widow before an unjust judge. It's, it's a smaller, lesser issue. It's not a universal, global issue. But we can keenly see that she gets what she wants through her doggedness. She overcomes systemic evil. She overcomes personal evil by her doggedness. She changes the course of her own life and the life of her community through her persistence. And Jesus is saying in this parable, how much more important is our perseverance in prayer? Prayer changes the course of history. God has ordained it this way, that we participate in his good works in the world. Everything in the Bible, in fact, indicates that God is using us in the work of his redemption in the world. Your words, your action, your time on your knees, it matters. In God's sovereign design, he's ordained prayers as a means to meeting his people, meeting his good person, his good purposes. I don't understand, I'll, I'll confess, I don't understand exactly how the sovereignty of God is intermingled with the autonomy of humanity. I don't understand that. It's a mystery. But there's no arguing that it's a reality that there is a divinely ordained interplay between the sovereignty of God. He knows the beginning, he knows the end, he knows the middle. And the autonomy of man, you can decide today whether or not you get down on your knees and pray, the autonomy of humanity, the volitional power of humanity, you have that power to make a decision today, whether or not you'll persevere in prayer, even working out your salvation in fear and trembling. 
So I don't know exactly how it, how it plays out that an all-knowing God involves finite creatures to direct history, but it's clear it does. In this morning's parable, the prayer request is for justice. Very specific parable. Uh, one particular element of the kingdom's coming. When the king comes, justice will come with him. But there are many other aspects of the kingdom that we long for and we should persist in prayer for. The salvation of friends, family, co-workers, teammates, the healing of the nations. I think of what our nation's going through, right? All being created in the image of God, but our nation having huge divides around racial issues. That, you know, when every nation, tribe, and language group is gathered before the throne of God, right, that'll be a part of the consummation of history, and it'll be an outcome of the persistent prayers of God's people. I think of the kingdom coming and setting us free from the bondage of broken bodies. We're to persist in prayer for healing. We're to persist in prayer for intimacy and marriages. You know, the, the family was God's idea. Wasn't the state's idea? Wasn't the church's idea? It was God's idea. We're to persist in prayer for our children, their faith, sinful entanglement, many entangled in sin, right? He wants us to be free. That'll be a part of the kingdom's coming freedom from sin. We should persevere in prayer now, asking, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Deliverance from all types of evil. I would suppose that there are probably hundreds of biblically appropriate areas that we're not to give up on asking God to come and influence in our lives. So I'm going to give you a little laundry list. I'd be happy to Maybe we can put it on the website at some point, or you could email me. I'd send you the list. Here's a laundry list, just a sampling of what the New Testament church persevered in prayer about. Physical healing. Deliverance from evil. The establishment of churches. Their enemies' well-being. That should have been a apostrophe, yes, sorry. Their daily needs to be met. The forgiveness of their sin. The ability to escape temptation, the justice and vindication of all, faithfulness in life, unity among Christians, deliverance from persecution, good health, success, uh, strengthening by the Holy Spirit, spiritual understanding, wisdom and how to act, love towards others, discernment in difficult situations, peace, relief from anxiety, opportunity to share the gospel, diligence in sharing the gospel, the salvation of non-believers, boldness in evangelism, signs and wonders to confirm the gospel. Their leaders those in authority. It's just a sampling. I can be content in whatever circumstances I'm in because of who Christ is, not because of who I am. But I don't want to grow comfortable in the darkness. I can be content in the darkness with unanswered prayers, my point. I can be content with unanswered prayer because I've learned the secret of being content in every situation, Paul said. But I'm not going to grow comfortable with an unanswered prayer. My contentedness is based on who he is. He's good. 
He's not slow to answer me. It feels slow sometimes. My contentedness is based on who he is, his character, the knowledge of his purposes for my life to give me a hope and a future. But I'm not going to grow comfortable. I'm going to be, we're going to be a part of the church that kicks in the gates of hell. There I'll ask for an amen. All right, let me pray for us. Father, you're good to us and you care for us. Thank you for the teaching of your son that we're to persist. I thank you for Jesus' persistence in prayer, the example that he was. Now by your Holy Spirit, Father, encourage us to continue in prayer for your glory and our good. Amen.